please join us in giving special thanks to our patrons. Story folk Paul Jackson, Sean Powell, Shawnee Basket, and Selena Vokenhauer. You're listening to Law and Legend, the Christmas special. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Lore and Legend with your host Rick Scott, bringing you legendary tales inspired by the festive traditions of world folklore and mythology. If you enjoy the episode today, please consider joining Paul, Sean, Shawnee and Selena as our patrons. If you go to our website at www.loreandlegend.co.uk and click on support us, then you can find out how. You are listening to part four of the 2021 Christmas special. This episode is called The Knights Who Stole Christmas. Feast and be merry, King Arthur had declared. Have no fear. It is true no wondrous deed has yet reared its head. But I've faith that one should find us, if we do not look too hard. By God's grace, some wonder shall come to us here in this hall. Not least, he thought, the great and golden wonders of the gifts which were coming from Arthur's tower, and which would be liberally distributed to all who shared his table on this Christmas day. But as he smiled on the table, on the hall and all his gathered guests, Sir Kay came to his side and whispered in his ear. And his face changed all at once from cheer to consternation. He raised his eyes, and as he looked, Sir Gawain was approaching down the length of the hall. But strangely, the knight had a great iron cauldron clasped between his arms. He brought it to the edge of the king's high table, and blushing, bowed before the king, lowered it at his feet. King Arthur looked down into the cauldron, and what he saw inside it caused his own face to flush red and to quiver with rage. What, he cried, is the meaning of this? And what do you think had caused the king to take such offence that his cry stung the ears of all in that court? and none more so than his loyal knight Gawain, who himself had presented the cauldron to his beloved king. I, though, well might he have cried out, and well might he have been offended, for I tell you that cauldron contained a most hideous prize, a most cursed gift, no more and no less than a grisly, decapitated corpse, a headless suit of armour splashed with gore, a tangled knot of metal and limbs which was smeared with trails of some white and resinous sap, a sap which filled the rest of the cauldron to its brim. Such a grim artefact was so far from the cheer and decorum of Arthur's Christmas feast no wonder he was wroth. 
and at once King Arthur demanded an explanation for this hideous spectacle. With his head bowed low, his eyes averted, Sir Gawain explained in haste and in hushed tone how he and his brother knights had come to suspect that persons unknown were stealing from the king's treasury. From Arthur's tower, where was held those thirteen treasures of the Celtic Isles, and the great store of plunder and tribute which his knights had claimed for their lord king. When he had inspected the treasure, and found it sorely depleted, Gawain quickly ordered his men to clear the stone floor of the tower, and a great bale of green grass to be placed there. Then taking a brand, Gawain had lit a fire beneath the bundle of grass and withdrawn, locking the doors of the tower fast behind them. As the fire consumed the great bales, Gawain and his men slowly circled the tower until they spied curls of smoke issuing from a single spot in the tower's walls. Inspecting it, they found that here the mortar had been chipped away, the stones removed and then replaced. And so they had laid a trap. They dug a pit in the floor of the tower, beneath the loose stones in that wall. And into the pit they lowered a cauldron. And into the mouth of the cauldron they poured hot pitch, resin, tar, a strong paste of glue which would swallow up anything which fell into it and hold it fast. This done, Gawain and his men withdrew and waited for the culprits to fall into their snare. But the next morning they had been presented with a terrible sight. Disturbed earth at the base of the tower, a gaping hole where the stones had been removed from the wall but not replaced. And on the other side, the cauldron holding this, this bloody, mangled and headless corpse. While well, Arthur was appalled, and he withdrew at once with his men to his inner chamber, where they held a conference, and the king looked to Merlin for his wisdom. They waited as the magician examined the body, and Arthur said, Well then, wise Merlin, what do you say? Can you explain this grim wonder, the provenance of this ghastly corpse? And Merlin said, This much is clear, my king. There were not one but two men in the tower last night. The first man who stepped through the hole being caught did beg the other to flee, and not only this, but to cut off his head and bear it away, so that he could not betray him or indeed himself. And the other was willing, though it drove a sword through his very own heart because he loved the one who was caught so much that he could not bear to see his identity known and thus dishonoured. Both loved each other as much as themselves, and the shame of the one was the shame of the other and the pain of the one was the pain of the other. By this we may be certain, they were of the same blood and kin. Very likely they were father and son, and by this we may also be sure, 
and the style of the armour and the weapons do confirm that they were knights, sire, of this very court, perhaps even knights of your own round table. At this judgment of Merlin's, Arthur was aghast, and even more angry now that there was suggestion here of treachery. If he is a knight of the quarter of this kingdom, then he must be found out, Arthur raged. And Sir Kay said, Surely that is simply done. Everybody knows that by the mystical laws of sympathy within nature, in the presence of the killer, the body of his victim, it will surely bleed. We need only bring every knight of the court to swear by the corpse that he does not know him. But Merlin shook his head. My king, as may be expected, the facts of this case are more difficult than Sir Kay understands. This man was not struck down against his will, but of his own wish and consent. But still the deep magic will help us, for it is no less certain that while blood may not betray the killer, his own tears surely will. If we not only present the body of his kinsman before his eyes, but declare his dishonour and have all swear three times to disown him, while there is no power in the world by which a soul which bore him love might not be overcome by the compulsion to weep. And so, to follow this advice, Arthur ordered that the cauldron containing the body of the first thief was to be placed at the head of the great hall, even in the midst of the Christmas feast. And one by one, all who sat at the great feasting tables was made to get up and to pass by the cauldron so that they should gaze on the fearful corpse. And before Gawain and the king, swear on their heart that they knew not the identity of the headless knight, nor were they friend or kin of his. Now it happened that the second thief was in the king's hall that day, and he did indeed bear great love towards the dead man, and even from afar, seeing the headless corpse in the cauldron so displayed, and the long line of men and women who queued to publicly stare and murmur and then swear against him. The tears, they began to rise up in him, and he knew well how he was in danger of discovering himself to all. And so, before his own table and bench could fully empty, the second thief leapt up from his seat, and he seized the elbow of the page who stood by, poised to carve the roast meat, and he plucked the carving knife from his hand. Here, my good friend, he exclaimed, let the honour be mine. And without a second of thought, he slammed the carving knife down, so it sliced through the tender pink meat, but also through the skin, the bone, and the flesh of his own thumb. At once his face went white, and he choked down on his cries as around him the other guests cried out, fainted or screamed at the sight of all the blood. But the second thief quickly dressed his hand, and he joined the line of knights and nobles cradling his injury by his breast. And when he came to stand over the cauldron and the body of the first thief, and made his vow that he did not know him, the tears ran freely over his cheeks, and the sobs racked his whole frame. And once Gawain's men seized him and dragged him over to the king's chair to be questioned. 
The king's eyes lit up at the prospect of discovering the identity of the thieves and of recovering his lost treasures, and he immediately promised the man would be pardoned and allowed to live if he would confess his crimes, return his treasure. But the thief, emboldened by his fear and his need, said, O mighty king, I do not shed tears because that wretched body is any concern of mine, but because this unlucky day has robbed me of my left thumb. Just now, as I made to carve the roast meat, I maimed myself with the carving knife and mutilated myself forever. And King Arthur, seeing that the blood still flowed from the man's injured thumb, deemed it a firm alibi for his tears and an indication of the man's truthfulness. He was moved to pity. No surprise if someone grieves when he is so grievously injured and right in the middle of Christmas. Go in peace, and in future be cautious on this day. And so thus, at the second thief saved himself, his family, and his knighthood by his wits. After the feast, he returned home, while King Arthur, deceived by this appearance of innocence, went back to Merlin for more advice. And Merlin said, Sire, if you would discover the culprit, then you must cast the net wider and deepen the culprit's shame. This St. Stephen's knight, have the body removed from the cauldron and cleaned, and then suspended from a pole, and paraded through the streets of Camelot, accompanied by Gawain and his guards, and have them arrest any who weep or seem distressed by its condition. King Arthur ordered it so, and the corpse of the first thief was extracted from the pitch and the tar and the paste, stripped of its armour, suspended from a pole carried between two men on strong charges, and then, a fervour and dignity, it was smeared afresh with a mixture of tar and feathers and straw. And then the gate was opened, and Gawain and the guards led the horses out from the yard. In Camelot, it was St. Stephen's evening, and the people of the town were dressing up in masks and straw suits and colourful motley clothing, parading around the town. With dance and with music they went from door to door, singing of the hunting of the wren. And in the midst of this all, Gawain and the knights and the horses were riding the body, a dour and fearful sight, as they processed through the streets with great solemnity, ringing bells to herald the approach of the disgraced dead, which being tarred with straw and with feathers, made itself a fine effigy of the captured wren. Their approach elicited jeers, cries of disgust. Some averted their gaze, others spat and threw things at the body, for the wren boys were showing that they despised the thief just as the treacherous bird. And sure enough, when the procession approached the lodgings of the second thief, 
and the grief and the pain and the longing began to well up unbidden within his breast, acting quickly. That second thief seized a hatchet, and he ran to the place where a tall tree stood in the yard. And he began to manically hack at the base of the trunk. He hacked, and he hacked, and he did not stop until the tree creaked and groaned and listed over dangerously in the direction of his house. The second thief's own wife and children cried out to him to stop, but to no avail. He landed a final blow and they scattered as the tree fell with a resounding crash into the roof of his very own house. And then the second thief ran out into the street, falling on his knees, tearing at his clothes, running his hands through his hair and vomiting out all of his tears and his grief at once. Gawain and his men surrounded him at once with their halberds, dragged him to his feet, and he was marched up the hill and through the castle gates and made to kneel once again in front of King Arthur, whose eyes narrowed as he recognised the man from the night before. Well, sir, what do you have to say for yourself this time? It seems you've played a cunning trick on me, but tricks are of no use here. God gives you away. Your thefts and your crimes accuse you. Confess and return the treasure to me, my knights and nobles, and I swear by Almighty God I will not take away your life or in any way harm you, but I will release you safe and sound. But the second thief, not yet despair of his deception. Instead, he heaved up a great sigh from the bottom of his heart, and he pleaded with Arthur, My king, I am the unluckiest of men, so hated by Dame Fortune that she will not let me pass through a single day without crushing me beneath the spokes of her wheel. Yesterday, a fatal day took away my fun. Today, an unluckier day still, for a tree which I chopped down fell the wrong way and utterly destroyed my house so that my wife and my children have nowhere to live this winter and shall surely freeze to death. And after all of that, I've been dragged here before you, sire, to be interrogated about your treasure. And then his face streaked with tears which were at once both deceptive and yet also genuine. He cast his eyes up to the heavens and he said, Oh, king, fulfill my wishes and have me killed. For this very moment, it seems a greater mercy to end my life than continue it, filled as it is with so much grief and disaster and pain. Seeing this man collapse before him, bathed in tears, wailing from the bottom of his heart for death, well, Arthur took pity on him. Let him go, instructed. And here, take this with you. And he handed the thief a purse of silver to aid his family and console him. Once the man was gone, the procession continued through the streets of Camelot and even the outlying villages, but eventually they returned without any success, and the dragged body of the headless thief was held together now only by sinew and bone 
Refusing to hear Gawain's apologies, King Arthur shook his head and returned again to his private chambers and spoke again to Merlin. It seems that these thieves have eluded us, he said to the magician. But Merlin said, There is one more thing that you can do, sire, and if this does not catch them, then nothing will. Choose forty of your strongest knights. Let twenty of them be equipped with black armour and black horses, and the other twenty with white armour and white horses. Have them hang the corpse from a post by its feet in the castle yard, and set them guard over it both night and day, with the white-clad soldiers on the one side of the yard, and the black-armoured soldiers on the other side. That way, you will not be able to slip by them, not under the light of the sun, or the light of the moon. If they are vigilant, they will surely catch you, for he will not be able to abide the sight of his fellow hanging there, but will surely be inspired to take him down, even if it means death for himself. And King Arthur ordered it so. And twenty knights were decked in suits of coal-black armour, and mounted on sable steeds, and with charges of black silk draped across their backs. And twenty other knights were kitted out in milk-white armour, mounted on snow-white steeds, and charges of white silk were draped across their backs. And the body of the disgraced thief was dangled upside down from its foot, from a wooden crossbeam in the courtyard of Camelot, and it hung there for all the crowds to see as they passed in and out of the castle gates, to and from the great hall, through the remaining days of the Christmas festivities. All saw, and so too did the second thief, who was yet living. And seeing the other thief so disgraced, he could no longer hold back his tears, but his heart was broken within him, and he began to sob uncontrollably. He ran home, and he went to his wife and to his child, and to them he confessed all. Yes, it was myself and my father who stole from King Arthur's tower. Not only this, but so much greater is our shame, since my father is that self-same knight of whom Tilesian told the first tale at the feast. Sir Clegius, famed for his loyalty and stewardship, and I his son, who carried the basket of cherries beside him at the court of Uta Pendragon. Uta had shown him great honour by making him royal steward, watchman of his tower and his treasury, and Arthur too had shown him reverence. For when my father had been Uta's steward and guarded his treasure for many long years, King Arthur came to the throne, and on account of my father's long service and advanced age, took back the keys and conferred them on another man, allowing my father to return home and spend the rest of his life peacefully and happily with his children. He came back laden with many gifts, 
and for me from Uta Pendragon, a military belt. And my father, loving me too dearly, showed me all of his riches and ordered me to spend our wealth generously, thereby winning fame and friends and favour with Almighty God, just as he had always done. But I spent his wealth too recklessly, too lavishly, purchasing horses, weapons, clothing, and all the things in which young men take special pride and pleasure. And with gifts I sought and with gifts I sought many friends. And with gifts I bought many friends. Friends who deserted me once I had no more gifts to give. When the money was gone I went back to my father and confessed it to my shame. And then my father did regret what he had done. My son, he said, since I foolishly loved you too well, I placed all that I had in your hands. When you saw that your reins had been slackened, you forgot all moderation and spent everything until you left us with only the roof over our head. What can we do? Now our name and our reputation will wither away with the flower of your youth. Unless... There is one way to keep up our name and our reputation for liberality, but it comes at great risk. And my father explained to me then how it could be done. And under the cover of the night, the two of us approached the Tower of King Arthur, where all the sovereign treasure was laid. And with iron mallets, we made a hole in the wall of the tower's great vault. My father went inside and removed as much of the treasure as we needed. And when he came out, we filled in the hole again. We returned home laden down with this wealth that wasn't ours, and I returned to my spendthrift ways. Our name and our glory was preserved. Whenever the money dwindled, we would return again to the treasure that we knew so well. That was until the night that we fell into Sir Gawain's trap. And heedless of the danger, my father was caught in that cursed cauldron of tar and glue and pitch. Desperately, I tried all night to free him, until the first cracks of dawn began to show over the far hills. And my father looked into my eyes and he told me I must flee. But he begged me not to leave him there alive, but to take my knife and cut off his head so that none might know the shame and disgrace of our family. I cried and I sobbed. I told him I could not. I would not do it. But he continued to beg me until I could stand it no more. And drawing my knife from my belt, I severed the trunk of his neck and his head and I fled away from that place in my heart's desolation. Now I am bereft, for all on account of me, the body of my once esteemed father does hang in the king's yard at Camelot to his eternal shame and my utter damnation. I buried my father's head in the chapel, but I thought never again to see the rest of his mortal remains. Oh, what a pain it was to see the king abuse my father's body the mansion of his noble soul, not once but twice in the eyes of the whole kingdom. But if I deserve damnation, he does not. 
There was no knight more gentle, more brave, more generous than he was. And though my very life be forfeit, I will pray for his absolution. And I will see his body taken down before the last stroke of Twelfth Night. And so in the darkening hours of the twelve tide, the son took himself to the chapel, and he stood before the altar, and he prayed to the holy angel, Saint Michael. Holy Michael, he said, hearken unto my prayer. Though I be a weak and pitiful sinner, grant me my request. My life up until this day has been one of sin and of wickedness. But if this night you will send me half a suit of armour, white as the pure driven snow, then this night I will swear upon my soul henceforth to give fully half of my remaining days to the service of my Lord and the Holy Spirit. And no sooner had the prayer been uttered and his lips stilled, than there was a flash of light and a roll of thunder. And lying there before the altar was half a suit of armour which glowed white as the pure driven snow. And then the sun went out into the graveyard, and there he prayed to the devil, saying, O Lucifer, wicked one, who often appears as an angel of light, my life up until this day has been one of sin and wickedness, and sorely does it cry out for repentance. But if this night you will help me save my father's soul by sending me half a suit of armour, black as the coal in the pits of hell, I will swear upon my own soul henceforth to give fully half of my remaining days to the service of the evil. And there was a rumble and a flash of fire, and lying there in a ditch of the earth was half a suit of armour which gleamed as coal-black obsidian that swallowed the light stars. And having done this, the knight carried away the two piles of black and white plate, and then he dressed himself in the full suit of armour, which was wholly black on one side and wholly white on the other. Then he took his horse, and he draped it with a cloth which was all sable on one side and all ermine on the other, and so dressed the knight approached the king's yard in Camelot, where stood the twenty knights in pure white armour, and the twenty knights in blackest armour. And by the chill air, and by the light of the moon, he passed between the two ranks of the king's soldiers. The white knights saw only one of the black knights passing by at their flanks, and the black knights saw only one of the white knights passing by theirs. And in this way the knights were all deceived. Passing through their midst, the party-coloured knight came to stand beneath his father. And quietly he took his body down from the cross. And carefully wrapping the body in a grave cloth, the son did carry it away.
The next morning, the soldiers saw that the body of the thief had been stolen from right under their noses. Hot with shame and with confusion, Gawain reported the theft to the king. They were at a loss to explain, his captains each saying the only thing that they had seen the whole night through was one of the black knights or the white knights coming or going on the other side of the yard. Then Merlin understood and explained the trick to the king. King Arthur shook his head. Well, that is an end to it, then. Say what you must about him. This was indeed a most resourceful knight to have evaded my best soldiers and you yourself, Merlin. And a devoted one, who would risk all for the honour of a friend. It is a wonder of a kind, surely, though not one that I had looked for on a Christmas day. And yet, in the darkest hour was our Lord Christ born, and in the midst of darkness. While gentle silence held all things, and night was halfway through its course, the omnipotent word leapt from heaven, from the royal throne, into the midst of the land that was doomed. And so, may that Lord Jesus grant us his grace, and give us time for repentance, that we may want to keep his demands and to do his bidding, choose the better part and no longer follow evil. May he give us his strength to do this, for his own name's sake. Amen. And the knight, meanwhile, rode away from Camelot, and into the broad darkness of the night. His father's body he buried in sacred ground, but he left behind his wife and child, provided for by what remained of the treasure and the gift of the king for their ruined home. But he was never again seen in Camelot, or in all the realms of Arthur's kingdoms.
You've been listening to the Lore and Legend Christmas Specials. This tale was called The Knights Who Stole Christmas. Your storyteller today was Rick Scott. The theme tune was composed and performed by Robert Bentall, with thanks to Finnegan for the song The Hunting of the Wren, and to the song's original writers, Lankham, with additional music by Caleb Hennessy and Derek and Brendan Feister and additional music and sound effects from the community at freesound.org. To find out about the folklore behind this tale, visit us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk. 
To find out the original folktale behind this story, visit us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk. This episode of Lore and Legend comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers. Storyfolk Paul Jackson, Sean Powell, Shawnee Basket and Selina Vokenhauer. Please consider joining our story folk next year and supporting the podcast by becoming a patron and paying a little bit of money towards each of our episodes. For details, visit our website and click on Support Us. A Merry Christmas to all you beautiful story folk and many happy returns. We will see you all again in 2022.